Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A radical new design for nuclear power plants gets federal approval, but an old problem persists, the radioactive waste. Politically, it's a big problem. Technically, it's not a big problem. We have the fuel securely stored at our sites. But also, physically, it's not that large a problem. If you took all the used fuel from the 50 years of commercial operation of reactors here in the U.S., you'd have one football field about 10 yards high. The goal, a nuclear renaissance in the U.S. Also, there are two million miles of natural gas pipelines in the nation and many leaks. What the message here that I hear coming from this leak that we're standing on top of right now is that you better get out there and fix these leaks right away before more people are killed, before property is damaged, and before we have a much bigger problem. Leaking gas pipes and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Three days before Christmas, the U.S. nuclear energy industry got a long-awaited gift. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission voted unanimously to approve a radical new design for atomic power plants. There hasn't been a commercial reactor built in the United States in over 30 years. The AP-1000 reactor, as it's called, uses a modular design. It's being built by Westinghouse, a subsidiary of Toshiba. The company says modular should make it cheaper to build. The AP stands for Advanced Passive, which is supposed to make it safer than previous nuclear power plants. China has already a dozen under construction, and soon there could be even more in the works in the U.S. Leslie Cass is with the Nuclear Energy Institute. Ms. Cass, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, people are nervous about Fukushima. Everybody knows about Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. What makes the AP-1000 so safe and special? With the new designs, we've added new features. For instance, the AP-1000 reactor doesn't require power or operator action to maintain safe shutdown for up to 72 hours. And in the case of a Fukushima-like accident, you wouldn't have had a fuel melt because you didn't require any of the off-site power that they so desperately needed. Now, the AP-1000 design is not without controversy. There was the NRC safety um engineer, John Ma, and he said that the shield building around the reactor, uh, the container, could crack like a, a glass cup. Those are his exact words. One of the strengths of the NRC and our regulatory process here is that anyone can raise a concern, and we have that same safety culture added our plants. It's good that Dr. Ma's concerns could be brought to light and vetted and then received attention all the way up to the top of the commission. Now, I understand what's also different about uh, the AP-1000 is that it's modular design, What does that mean? So in the construction process, you break down the large structures into modules or pieces so that you can fabricate them in more of a factory-like environment, which gives you better control and a faster build cycle. So each reactor that goes up is not unique. Correct. That is the plan going forward, is to have a standardized fleet of reactors worldwide, which is good for regulators. It's less uh, systems to learn and comprehend. It's good economics because it's repeat build. 
and it's uh, easier maintenance because you have similar components and designs. So now the NRC has approved the AP1000 design, and they're going through the new streamlined licensing process. That's kind of a brand new kind of process designed to make it uh, quicker in terms of construction and licensing. Well, the licensing so far hasn't been that fast. We've spent over four years on the combined licenses because it's the first time through. But what's different is you receive a construction and operating license at the same time up front with full public participation. And all the questions about safety and operation are answered before you start to build. So opponents, if they wanted to sue before they had a lot of opportunities to try to halt construction and then the the eventual operating license, will they have those opportunities now? Once you get your license, there's a very high bar to show prima facie evidence that the licensee has not conducted the construction in accordance with their license, that there were true defects. So frivolous lawsuits are kept out. There are utilities in, uh, what, five southern states. They want to build 14 of these AP1000 reactors. What will they cost? What's the price of an AP1000? Right now, for instance, for the two units, uh, all-in cost at Georgia Power's site is about $14 billion. Now, that includes all the owner's costs, some transmission. I think the two reactors for SCANA and their partners in South Carolina are running in the neighborhood of $12 billion. Is that a pair or for one? A pair. Mm-hmm. So 2,200 megawatts of capability, 1.6 million homes worth of electricity. The Obama administration is a backer of nuclear power. It's uh, hoping to provide something upward of $50 billion in loan guarantees to utilities that build reactors. Is that enough? Well, over time, we will see. For right now, we're getting off to a slow start here in the United States, and I think uh, do a few carefully and then move forward. So once we prove the technology and the licensing process, it should certainly get easier to obtain financing. But, you know, nuclear power has been around for a better part of 60 years. Why does the industry still need, you know, federal government guarantees? In this case, it's really a matter of size. As you mentioned, the projects cost uh, north of $10 billion, and the companies we're talking about, the largest electric utility in the United States is in the neighborhood of $30 billion market cap. So having that support to help with the financing is key to getting more of these reactors built. But why doesn't the, you know, the free market uh, pay the freight? Why do I have to come up with the guarantee? Certainly the support that we get for the loan guarantee program and for nuclear power is in large part derived from the number of jobs. We have uh, 3,000 to 4,000 construction jobs for these two-unit sites as well as 800 permanent jobs that can't be exported. And that's very attractive. And I know the communities that have these reactors are very excited about their uh, economic growth right now. So it'll start generating electricity, but it's also going to start generating nuclear waste. We've been kind of storing that waste. We haven't been able to get rid of it permanently since the industry began. What's the plan there? We like to say it's it's politically, it's a big problem. Technically, it's not a big problem. We have the fuel securely stored at our sites, although our utilities would love to have an ultimate solution as much as everybody else. But also, physically, it's not that large a problem. If you took all the used fuel from the 50 years of commercial operation of reactors here in the U.S., you'd have one football field about 10 yards high. I know that Energy Secretary Chu was a big advocate of small nuclear reactors. Anything happening there? Yes. Uh, we're excited to say that DOE just got approved in the FY 2012 budget for a new small reactor program. 
How, how much smaller would a, a small reactor be compared to, say, the AP-1000? AP-1000 is around 1,100 megawatts, and the small reactors top out at 300 megawatts. So why would you want a small one, and where would you put it? There are lots of possibilities. The smaller reactors could be used to repower old coal stations. They could be used uh, in the smallest cases of 25 megawatts. They could be used in a remote community that doesn't have access to uh, other electricity sources and it saves them on having to import fuel. There are just a range of possibilities once you get the size down, and it certainly helps folks build because the capital cost is correspondingly lower. So, Ms. Cass, are we looking at the, um, at the long-talked-about nuclear renaissance? Is that happening? I think it's happening globally. There are 63 reactors under construction worldwide, and you see countries like China and India and Russia and several different countries in Europe moving forward with new reactors. Here in the U.S., again, we're going to start slowly, but I think you'll see as demand increases and as folks look to diversify their energy portfolio, nuclear certainly is an attractive option. That's Leslie Cass. She's Senior Director of Business Policy and Fuel Supply with the Nuclear Energy Institute. Well, while we still don't know what to do with all that radioactive waste from nuclear plants, one thing we do know. The uranium fuel to power the AP-1000 reactors probably won't be coming from the Grand Canyon. Interior Secretary Ken Salazar has announced a 20-year moratorium on uranium mining near the National Park. When you look at a place like the Grand Canyon, we carry out the great example through this protective measure because we're saying, yes, this place is very special and we need to make sure that we can and will protect it. Joining us to discuss the Obama administration's decision is Jane Danowitz. She's director of public lands for the Pew Environmental Group. Hi, Jane. Thank you. Very nice to be with you. So why in the world would anyone want to mine in the Grand Canyon? Uh, Well, that's a pretty good question. And I think if you told most Americans that uranium mining is allowed at the doorstep of the Grand Canyon National Park, it's a pretty good bet they'd stare at you in disbelief. And so I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the president took the action that he did and decided to uh, issue a moratorium on all new claims staking around the Grand Canyon for uh, the next 20 years. But there's a lot of uranium around the Grand Canyon, and and there are companies that are, are mining it right now. Experts will disagree how much uranium is there. I think one of the real problems here is that the United States still has a law in its books that was signed by Ulysses S. Grant in 1872 that does govern the mining of gold, uranium, and other so-called hard rock metals. And under that law, corporations, including those that are foreign-owned, can go almost anywhere on U.S. public lands, including places that are in close proximity to national parks and in national forests, and mine. And to add insult to injury, the metals that they take, including gold and uranium, they can take for free without taxpayer compensation. This is in contrast to what uh, oil and gas and coal companies have done for decades, and that is pay the federal treasury royalties. So what's in it for the U.S. taxpayer if we're giving away these mineral rights for free? Well, there's nothing in it for the U.S. taxpayer because not only are they giving away precious metals for free, but they're bearing a significant burden of cleanup costs. Uh, The EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, just came out with new figures that uh, found that, once again, the mining industry is the number one emitter of toxic pollutants in the country. And so, therefore, not only taxpayers are losing precious metals, but they're also having to pay for cleanup for the environment. Well, is there any conversation in Congress at this point um, 
to change this 1872 law, you know, since we do have a, a budget crunch, we could use the, the, the money. There has, is legislation that has been tr- introduced to reform the 1872 mining law. And while Congress is busy with lots of issues and has had a difficult time uh, getting consensus on most, the fact that the Grand Canyon uh, is at risk from mining and the fact that because of this law, more than $2.5 billion of metals are taken off of public lands for free without taxpayer compensation, without compensating uh, the Treasury, without paying the Treasury. That may well be an impetus for lawmakers from both sides of the aisle to take a look at this legislation and try to find uh, some consensus around reforming it. But proponents of uranium mining, including Arizona Republican Senator John McCain, say that the mines have created, you know, thousands of jobs and could create many more and be a source of domestic energy. Well, there's two parts there. One, certainly according to the figures, tourism is from the canyon is is really the dominant industry in, in that region. Uh, the Grand Canyon attracts more than 5 million uh, visitors each year. Those visitors provide more than 12,000 full-time jobs and they generate a revenue of a almost $700 million annually to the region. And the second point is that the companies that are operating, most of which in the canyon are foreign-owned, there's Canadian interest, there's a Russian state-owned entity that has a significant number of claims, also the South Koreans. And uh, at least the history has been that, that the uranium that's taken does not stay in the United States, but is shipped abroad. You know, proponents of mining around the Grand Canyon say that this is simply uh, President Obama kowtowing to his his base, uh, that he, he there really is not an environmental reason or environmental reasons for mining not to go forward. I think when all is said and done, protecting the Grand Canyon is going to be looked upon as one of the most important decisions that the Obama administration makes during its tenure. And it's a decision that's not only good for the environment, it's good for the whole economic vitality of, of the Southwest. It's good for jobs, it's good for tourism, and it's good for uh, protecting one of the, the most famous icons in the world. Well, Jane Danowitz, thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Jane Danowitz is Director of Public Lands for the Pew Environmental Group. Just ahead, what the nose knows, sniffing out dangerous and climate-disrupting gas leaks right under our feet. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Natural gas. It burns cleaner than coal or oil. It's cheap and convenient. It's right at your fingertips. 65 million American households use natural gas to heat and cook. And thanks to the mining technique known as hydraulic fracturing, supply is soaring, and so is demand. The International Energy Agency says we're on the verge of the golden age of natural gas that promises to transform the world's energy economy. It's a bridge fuel to the future. But delivering on natural gas's promise and distributing trillions of cubic feet through a maze of millions of miles of pipelines is fraught with so many potential problems and real dangers that critics say Natural gas might be a bridge too far. My investigation led me to natural gas sleuth Nathan Phillips. I followed him up a steep, secretive flight of stairs at Boston University. 
So this is a part of Boston University that almost no one sees. Professor Phillips is director of the University Center for Energy and Environmental Studies. He unlocks stairway doors leading to his rooftop lab. This is kind of what we would consider an urban laboratory. Phillips studies a city the way a biologist studies an organism, as a complex, living, breathing thing. So we're about, I think, something like 110 feet off the ground now on the top of the College of Arts and Sciences building at Boston University. What a great view. (laughs) We can see all the way down down the Charles into into Boston. It's Fedway Park there. That's right. That's right. And so in the back there is what we call the urban metabolism meter or sensor. And so that kind of contraption there on that little mast is measuring the carbon dioxide level and the methane concentration as it passes by that meter. We call it the pulse of the city. It's the, but it gives us information about where humans are and what they're doing, where the natural systems are and what they're doing at any time of the day. We're measuring this 10 times a second, every minute, every hour, 24-7, 365 days a year. From this vantage point, using sophisticated instruments, Professor Phillips takes the pulse of the city, precisely measuring urban metabolism, the emissions of greenhouse gases produced by the comings and goings of cars and trucks, the burning of fuels to power factories and utilities, heat homes and office buildings. In terms of global warming, molecule for molecule, methane is 21 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. It's odorless, colorless, lighter than air, and combustible, which is why methane is so useful. It's the major component of natural gas. Below the streets of our nation's cities snakes a massive network of natural gas pipelines, more than two million miles of low-pressure pipes. But weather, water, and accidents all take their toll on these gas distribution pipes, creating problems that most of the time are out of sight and mind, but literally under our noses. <sighs> Professor Nathan Phillips stands on Boston's Commonwealth Avenue, not far from Fenway Park, and uses another sensitive measuring device to monitor for methane, his nose. <sighs> Leaks in the gas distribution pipeline network cost billions of dollars a year in property damage. Explosions kill people, and methane contributes to climate change. In fact, critics say so much of the powerful greenhouse gas leaks into the atmosphere that over the short term, natural gas may disrupt the climate more than oil or coal. About nine months since I became aware of this problem, and uh, ever since then I've started to, you know, keep a smell out, I guess you'd say, for leaks. And right there, in the street, by the curb, there's the telltale smell. So mercaptan is the substance that they put in natural gas uh, so that if there is a leak, people can smell that. And I smell a leak. Yes. So everyone I've, well, many people I've talked to know about a leak. They say, oh yeah, there's one down the street from me. And really we have a million anecdotes about leaks, but when you put it all together and map it, it's pretty amazing how many leaks there are distributed over a city like Boston. And mapping Boston for leaks is just what Nathan Phillips did. He drove around the city with pipeline expert Bob Ackley. Okay, we're going to go right up Harvard Street, 
to Commonwealth Ave, and we'll go right down Commonwealth Ave through Kenmore Square. Bob Ackley is a former gas company leak investigator. Now he runs a consulting firm, Gas Safety USA. And on his truck is a sensitive Picaro methane tracking device, similar to the one Professor Phillips uses at his rooftop lab. You have two special pipes, uh, nostrils, I guess, on, on, the, on the front end of your, your uh, SUV here. What are those? Are those, are those? Well, that draws in an air sample from ground level and tests it with my flame ionization unit. So I'll be able to drive down the street and detect gas. And I also have one on the rear that's for my Picaro instrument that will actually document the uh, methane readings on Google Earth. It tracks them and will place them via GPS points. So I can take a running uh, sample from the ground and it'll chart it right on Google Earth. Okay, we're at Commonwealth in Gloucester, 5.3. Okay, lots of leaks here, 2.2. The natural background level of methane is two parts per million, but as Ackley and Phillips drive around the area where I smell the leak, the digital readout jumps. 2.7, 2.8, oh, 5.2. Okay, so there was a big spike that we just, uh, 11.1. So that's over f- about five times the global background value, back down to 2.4. So very noisy in here. 5.4, this is one of those areas of, we called a, an area of neglect. The team also drove around San Francisco mapping gas leaks. What we see are some clean streets and then streets that have been neglected. So leak, leak, leak as you drive through. It's kind of a hodgepodge. Some of the methane leaks Nathan Phillips and Bob Ackley detected measure 30 parts per million. That's 15 times the natural background level. But Ackley says even small leaks can quickly add up to a large volume. But we've captured as much as, uh, I think it's around 600 cubic feet per day out of a leak. So, I mean, the average household uses about 200 feet. So that would be three days' worth of gas leaking out of one leak in one day. I was very surprised to see how many leaks there were. One reason Professor Nathan Phillips was surprised is because Boston's gas utility spent $71 million making the system more efficient. But just last year, its estimated gas lost from leaks was worth more than $40 million. I wasn't expecting to see anything uh, like what we saw. No, you'd expect that a, a gas company would, would want to fix their leaks because they're losing gas, they're losing money. Well, I, the, the, the costs of the leaks are not borne by the industry. They are borne by the ratepayers. So you and I, to the extent that we're using gas, we're bearing the costs of the inefficiencies in the system. How much, what kind of percentage, a guesstimate of the gas that's going through these pipes is actually leaking into the atmosphere? That's a big unknown. So the industry is required to report what they call lost and unaccounted gas to the federal government. The amount of unaccounted and lost gas reported to the Energy Information Administration is all over the map. Neither the Pipeline Hazardous Safety Materials Administration, the federal agency in charge of gas pipes, nor National Grid, the largest natural gas utility in New England, would talk with me about gas leaks. But I did speak with Mark McDonald. He used to inspect leaks for National Grid and now heads the New England Gas Workers Association, which had to file a lawsuit to learn how many gas leaks were reported by Massachusetts utilities. Right now it's generally 3-4% of 
all gas in, in the distribution side is lost. You estimate that there's 22,000 gas leaks in Massachusetts? That's not an estima- estimation. That's exact. I have documentation from the, each gas company uh, showing at least 22,000. Now, that probably makes up 90% of the uh, companies in Massachusetts, so that number is even higher. I would, I would probably guess around 25,000. And uh, there are many leaks that haven't even been detected, I'm sure. So it's significant. It's definitely significant. Most leaks are small, the size of pinholes. Gas utilities rank them a three on a scale from one to three. Some are twos. They're leaks to watch and schedule for repair. But a three can quickly turn into a two, and a two into a deadly one. It's what happened in Philadelphia. With daylight, a crater of clues from this explosion in a neighborhood where residents reported smelling gas. Boom. Uh, the corner store just went up. The power the One gas worker died. Six were injured. That was in January 2011. And that September, it happened in Seattle. The couple went to the hospital with serious injuries after the natural gas explosion utterly wiped out their home. Investigators now believe the huge fireball may be linked to a tiny discovery. We have excavated the pipe and there is a small leak that is consistent with what, with what we found. Homes within a five mile radius were evacuated. Four other gas pipeline leaks were discovered. Less dramatic, but also deadly, is the effect tiny gas leaks in the ground can have on nearby plants. Environmental professor Nathan Phillips says natural gas leaks disrupt the urban metabolism. What we know is bad for many trees is the, they need oxygen in the soil. Phillips says just like people need oxygen, so do the roots of plants. When natural gas leaks into the ground, it displaces oxygen in the soil and dries the earth. Trees near natural gas leaks can choke and die of thirst. The most active part of the root system are the fine roots, and those are the first to go. They're delicate, but they're the workhorses that bring in the nutrients, bring in the water, and if they starve and they start dying, you're, you're cutting off the supply system for the rest of the tree. So it's basically a killing of the roots. Gas leak investigator Bob Ackley says before the invention of gas detectors, inspectors located underground leaks by looking for damaged vegetation. He says it's still a valuable clue. And that's what you look for in a vegetation survey is a tree that looks like it's dying. A tree's dead and dying vegetation. And all the gas companies have it on their website. A sign of a gas leak is dead and dying vegetation for no apparent reason. So one tree, how much can one tree be worth? How do you put a value on a tree? Well, the arborists have a, have a formula they call the trunk formula method where they go by species, condition, and location of the tree. Um, I'll just give you a quick example. We have a tree over by LaSalle College in Newton that's a, uh, about a 50-inch beech tree that I think we valued at around $47,000. That's one tree. Take hundreds or thousands of trees damaged by gas leaks, and you're talking a lawsuit. Attorney Jan Schlickman. The trees, you know, are the sentinels. Schlickman and Bob Ackley have created the Massachusetts Public Shade Trust, surveying suburban Boston communities, charting trees damaged from leaks. The trees are telling us something. They are sending out you know, a loud signal to us that, look, if it's killing them, then it's killing the quality and the health and the safety of life in the urban environment. Attorney Jan Schlickman is best known for his environmental lawsuit chronicled in the book and movie A Civil Action. Now Schlickman is suing Gas Utility National Grid on behalf of five Massachusetts cities, seeking compensation for the alleged damage gas leaks do to their trees. 
So it's doing great damage to these old stately trees. And then when they die, the double tragedy is that oftentimes these wonderful trees are cut down, replaced with a sapling, and then the sapling then doesn't thrive and then eventually dies as well. And you have this repetitive process with the cities and towns and landowners not being aware of you know, the root cause of the problem. Hey, Bruce, come over here. This is just one of the leaks that I can smell around the building. The building is the gold-domed Massachusetts State House. And sniffing out the leaks in the street behind it is Representative Lori Ehrlich. The State House is the nation's oldest. So are some of the underground gas pipes here. And they're leaky. We're standing here on the corner of Hancock and Mount Vernon Street. And though I'm concerned about this leak, there are many other leaks around the building. And, um, but even more of concern are the four stories of residential dwellings that are right next to the leak that I'd be most concerned about. This is iconic. This is Beacon Hill. It doesn't get any more plush and powerful, and yet we've got leaks right here. Well, I, perhaps it's a message to the legislators in the building that it's time to pass some legislation addressing this issue. I've, uh, this is the second session that I've proposed four bills that deal directly with this issue. And the fact that we have a leak and maybe many other leaks right outside the State House, I think just elevates it to a, uh, a point where we need to do something about it. Before more people are killed, before property is damaged, before trees are killed, and before we have a much bigger problem. Just a few months before this interview behind the State House, two blocks away, gas leak explosion sent two manhole covers flying and shattered windows. Representative Ehrlich's bills would require that Massachusetts gas utilities fix all 25,000 leaks in their pipes within three years and compensate cities and property owners for the damage methane does to trees and plants. Tom Kiley is president of the Northeast Gas Association. We oppose those bills for a variety of reasons, a lot of them economics and a lot of them because we, we feel it's truly unnecessary to do that. Clearly that the, the safety of our customers and the consumer and, and, and residences is paramount of the natural gas industries, but we feel that the costs that would be added to this are unnecessary and, and um, wouldn't achieve the goals that they, people have. And gas companies do have aggressive programs to make repairs, uh, to replace cast iron and bare steel mains and other programs. It can cost gas companies a million dollars a mile or more to replace leaking pipes, but it can take decades. And critics say, in the meantime, customers are paying for leaked gas and the pipes are dangerous. Some of the pipes are 100 years old and made of cast iron. In the 1950s, utilities began replacing them with bare steel pipes, but gas corroded them, so they were replaced with coated steel pipes. Gas leak investigator Bob Ackley says... The problem is nationwide. I'm traveling down to Washington, D.C. this weekend. I've already been down there and done some spot checks. The problem is just as bad or worse uh, with the um, rotten, rotting steel. So wherever there's cast iron and old steel in the ground, you're going to have a problem. Since the 1970s, utilities have been laying underground pipe made of polyethylene or plastic. It's flexible, easy to handle and install, and it doesn't corrode. But it does crack. And unlike cast iron, which can last a century, Mark McDonald of the New England Gas Workers Association says plastic is only good for about 45 years. Companies believe it's going to last forever. We're already replacing it. The number one problem with polyethylene, it has no resistance to uh, damage. So, so the more plastic you put in, the more problems you're going to have with people digging in and around natural gas lines. 
it's a major problem. It's going to get larger. The more plastic you put in, the bigger that problem's going to get. Accidents are the single biggest cause of pipeline damage, from backhoes and jackhammers used by road construction crews and workers laying electric lines and cables. The message, dig safe and sniff. I'm at about 3.4 right at the leak. Yeah, I think it was up to 6 if I pulled up a little bit. Leak expert Bob Ackley says if you smell something, say something, which is exactly what he does after measuring the leak behind the Massachusetts State House. I mean, I would grade this if it was my house, definitely a grade one leak. I mean, I'd want it repaired immediately. It's a hazard. So I'm going to call the leak into National Grid now and just make sure everything's okay here. Hi, uh, Bob Ackley here. I just want to report a gas odor uh, in Boston by the State House. Coming up next week, from problems with low-pressure neighborhood gas pipelines to the dangers of the really big ones. Bringing a 42-inch high-pressure natural gas pipeline into downtown Manhattan boggles the minds. I mean, it's not a question of if something happens. It's a question of when. Coming up, using your cell phone to tap into your inner scientist. A new global environmental network needs you. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, why we have to give thanks to caterpillars. But first, this note on emerging science from Raphael Benin. Take a deep breath. Do you feel energized? Pretty soon, your breath could be recharging not just your lungs, but a battery. Today, when a pacemaker or other medical device is implanted in a person's body, it contains a battery, and that battery will eventually need to be replaced. Scientists at the University of Wisconsin are trying to help patients avoid that additional surgery by finding a way to power a medical device without a battery. Researchers already know how to create electricity by exposing a piece of long, skinny plastic to gusts of wind or even breezes. When the air forces the top plastic to vibrate, an electrical charge is generated. The Wisconsin-based scientists are using that same principle with a piece of plastic so small and sensitive that the wind power of just breathing can produce enough electricity to keep a small medical device running. The researchers hope to implant the plastic in the bridge of a patient's nose. If all goes as planned, 
Every time the patient laughs, inhales, or speaks, the medical device is charged. And knowing there are no batteries to be replaced could help a lot of people breathe much easier. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Rafaela Benin. We look down on the lowly caterpillar, but our appreciation soars in the spring when it transforms into a lovely butterfly. Still, even before metamorphosis, there's a lot we can thank the creepy crawlers for, as Lori Sanders reports. With one hand, Dave Wagner uses a short stick to wrap the branches of an alder shrub. In the other, underneath the leaves, he holds a beating sheet, a square frame with a piece of white cloth stretched across it. Many of these caterpillars are so well camouflaged that it's almost impossible to pick them out with the human eye unless you know exactly what to look for and where to look. And there's not enough hours in the day to find caterpillars that way. Okay, let's see what we got. Well, lots of insects, mostly small beetles. There's a caterpillar, yeah. Look at that. This is a swallowtail larva. Gorgeous creature. Look at those eye spots. Let's see if we give him a little squeeze and see if he uh, sticks out his osmeteria. Whoa, look at that. Smell that. Pretty sweet. So I guess if a bird were to pick at these eye spots that you're seeing here, those orange tentacles would come out covered with sort of the, the goop, that orange citrusy goop, and hit the bird right on the beak, possibly even go into the eye. So that's its defense. Uh, Not to mention that it's pretty well camouflaged, really. Dave Wagner is a biologist at the University of Connecticut in stores and a world authority on caterpillars. I think there's something really special about watching a caterpillar metamorphose into an adult. You never know what you're going to get. So it's a real-life example of the Cinderella story, the ugly duckling, the phoenix from the flame. I mean, it's something very powerfully engaging and and metaphorical here. And I'm certain a lot of kids find much hope and interest in this change. Wagner certainly does. During the last 20 years, he's raised tens of thousands of caterpillars. And in 2005, he wrote the first comprehensive guide to the caterpillars of eastern North America. The book became an instant hit among naturalists. And with Wagner's colorful writing style... It also went on to win a literary award. Today's excursion is to a swamp in Petersham, Massachusetts. As Wagner beats the bushes, he's careful to wrap on only one plant species at a time. That's because most of the 3,000 species of moths and butterflies found in New England are very specific about what plants they eat as caterpillars. And Wagner says, of all the plants that are eaten, nothing is more popular than oak. Oak is like typo blood, and so there's probably 400 species of butterflies and moths in New England that eat oak. Look what we have here. This is a fabulous caterpillar. This is the caterpillar of a hook-tip moth. What is really exciting or interesting or novel about this caterpillar is he's got two specialized CD near his rump that he actually uses to drum on the leaf where he's at. And so this is one of the few talking caterpillars that I know about. And so these guys actually advertise to their uh, brothers and sisters, their sibs, and perhaps any other caterpillars that this is my leaf. And so they uh, detect little vibrations and they will start using paddles on their rump, basically to drum out a beat, a signal, which says, this is mine, find another. But to protect their own skins, Wagner says most caterpillars use shape and color. Some have gone the cryptic route. They're green or look like sticks or bird poop or wilted leaves. Others have taken the opposite approach and used bright colors, reds, yellows, and oranges, offset by blacks or whites, to advertise that they have stinging hairs 
or toxins. They're the Clint Eastwood caterpillars. Basically, you're a bad dude, and you're trying to advertise to any would-be predator that perhaps you'd be better off looking elsewhere for a meal. And all these caterpillars, bad dudes included, play a crucial role in the ecology of our landscape. Springs would be really quiet in the Northeast if it weren't for caterpillars. So they play a quintessential role in the diets of, of many animals, but particularly we think songbirds. And then as these caterpillars turn into adults, they play other roles. So the, the butterflies and moths that these caterpillars are going to turn into play quintessential roles in pollination, for example. Uh, they're absolutely essential, again, in the diets of certain things like flycatchers and bats. And there's another important role that caterpillars have played. Because plants can't run away from caterpillars, they've evolved a battery of chemicals to protect themselves. Wagner says these secondary chemicals are the basis for drugs and medicines, like opium and poppies and salicylic acid in willows that's used in aspirin. Others, like rubber and turpentine, are used in industry. And then there are culinary benefits. Cumin, paprika, pepper, cinnamon... Indirectly, our lives are, are greatly enriched by the fact that there's caterpillars on this planet. French food and Latin American food, these would be absolutely bland if there weren't plants manufacturing these chemicals to protect themselves from ravenous caterpillars. So the next time you tip back a glass of fine red wine, give a toast to caterpillars for the many ways they've influenced our lives, including the production of tannin, the natural chemical in grapes, that gives wine its body and character. For Living on Earth, I'm Laurie Sanders. Caterpillars aren't the only species with curious strategies for adapting to their surroundings. Here's Michael Stein with this week's Bird Note. Environmental conditions shape birds' bodies, even birds belonging to the same family. For example, consider the terns. The common terns you're hearing have long pointed bills they use to catch small fish. They migrate along both coasts and through the interior in spring and fall, on their way between nesting grounds in Canada and their winter home in the tropics. By migrating, they move from one warm and productive environment to another. Their close relative, arctic terns, look much alike, but both their bills and legs are shorter. Both species feed in exactly the same way. So why would the arctic tern's bill and legs be shorter? Well, because arctic terns breed in the Arctic and winter in Antarctica. They're subject to much more severe weather than our common terns. Because birds' bills and legs are not covered by feathers they lose heat. It just makes sense then for birds in cold climates to have short bills and legs and less exposure to the cold. That's Michael Stein of Bird Note. To see some photos of common and arctic terns, take a turn to our website, LOE.org.
For a new perspective on our planet's environment, check out Eye on Earth. The cloud computing-based network just launched. It creates a place online where the world's leading environmental scientists and you can collaborate. Jacqueline McGlade is the director of the Copenhagen-based European Environment Agency. It's one of the lead partners in the Ion Earth project. Well, Ion Earth works in a very distributed way. Uh, it's an engaging website, you might call it, which we would want people to join. But having joined, it's a possible club that you've come into to share information about the environment. So I can contribute? Absolutely. As a citizen, we see this as one of the fundamental ways for the first time that we can bring individual efforts on looking around and seeing what's happening in the environment alongside data that's being collected by governments, by institutions, and really look at that formal and informal combination to give us a bird's eye view of what's happening in a particular part of the world. So walk me through it. I'm on the Eye on Earth website. How does it work? Well, when you first come, you'll see there's a whole row of little boxes which go across like a ticker tape. Some of them are called watches, water watch, noise watch, air watch. So if you click open, let's say, um, air watch. Okay, hang on. Okay. You should get, actually, a map of the world. Here it goes. So if you actually go into the search box, you can type a place. So where would you like to go? I mean, we could go to Copenhagen if you like. Okay, that's where you are. Let's do that. Yep. Okay, so let's go to Copenhagen. As I go in, I can see a map of the roads. You can have a 3D picture of the buildings. The most important thing is that you'll see a kind of screen that comes in from the right, which has our rating and community rating on it. The hour rating is actually the air quality measured by a formal reporting requirement from the country. And in the case of Copenhagen today, it says that the rating is very good. The community rating is the one that's been given by the members of the public. So that would be a, a subjective rating, or can they yes. take an instrument and, and take an accurate rating? You can have instruments, you can have sensors, but we have detected that over the years that we've been running this, people who are, particularly those who have got breathing disorders, are very sensitive to the quality of air. And when we ask the members of the public to rate the quality of air, we can get not only the overall picture of how good is the air, but also we can ask them about whether or not it smells clean, um, is there an odor. And so using these different words, we get a very good picture about what the quality of, of air really is. So if I were to go to um, Water Watch and uh, was walking down the beach and, and I saw a red tide... Could I just pull out my cell phone and, and report that to Eye on Earth? Absolutely. And because it's pretty much live, it means that anybody else who's looking at Water Watch, let's say, around about the same time or during the day, would not only be told from you that there's uh, water contamination and algal bloom, but other things, you know, litter on the beach or, or whatever. So, in a way, the immediacy of somebody going out on a picnic um, and encountering a beach that's not in very good shape means actually that that day not many people will visit the beach if people use Water Watch. Now, I noticed something. You have a, a mobile application for a noise meter. Yes. So here we go one step further because one of the questions that you raised, very important, is well, this is very subjective. If someone is measuring for their own purposes air quality or water quality or the quality of the beach, that's a kind of subjective thing. On the noise meter, 
then we actually have moved one step on because we have the possibility of mobile telephones being extremely good noise receptors. So having a meter on your smartphone and then literally just recording the noise where you stand for 10 seconds in terms of you know, how intense the noise is, you then have the possibility of transmitting that into the noise watch site. And it appears as a dot and you can go and look at it and you can see how many decibels were experienced at that time and that place. Well, that's not eye on Earth, that's ear on Earth. <laughs> that's ear on Earth. I think the eye on Earth is a very, very broad umbrella to give the sense that we can see what's happening around the world. And Noise Watch is very, very popular. We have um, politicians and mayors and different people around the world in cities really interested in understanding now how important noise is for public health. If you were able to, I think, get let's say, a huge global movement at one moment to go out and measure noise, I think you would find it very interesting. But people who are designing cities, I mean, this is a device where very simply they can ask citizens to participate and really start to document where the noise corridors are and understand how even moving traffic through the day can really be changed to actually moderate the levels of noise that we're exposed to. Boy, this could put a whole new perspective on the environment. I believe that we have turned the corner through the environment lens into a world where people can genuinely have reliable data and information that will inform their daily living. And I believe that's what we need to do to change people's perception of how we're going to survive in the future. Well, Jacqueline McGlade, thank you so very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Jacqueline McGlade is the director of the European Environment Agency. It's a lead partner in the Eye on Earth Public Science Project. To survey the maps, head over to our website, LOE.org. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Valinsky, Jessica Lise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shriskandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. And this week, we welcome our new interns, Mary Bates and Sophia Golden. Welcome aboard. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com.
Pax World for tomorrow. E R I Public Radio International.